0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Evan Zircadas, your host, and in today's episode, I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. David Allen Purnell, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University Northwest, to talk about his new book, Belisarius and Antonina, Love and War in the Age of Justinian published in 2023 by Oxford University Press. Hello, David, and
0: welcome to the show. Hello, Evan. Thank you for having me on the show.
1: Absolutely. It, absolutely. such a pleasure uh, to have another Byzantine uh, topic and, and another Byzantine history conversation uh, in our Medieval History um, podcast. Um, I would like us to start a little bit uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your research interests, your career, um, and all of that stuff.
0: Sure. I am a historian of the 6th century Roman or Byzantine world, and I have been working at Indiana University Northwest now for 12 years. And so I guess you'd call me sort of mid-career historian at this point. Um, I have written a couple of books and a lot of articles and book chapters, uh, almost all focused on the sixth century, where I have interests in military history and social history. uh, And very recently with this book in sort of gender and marriage issues as well. So uh, that sort of sums up uh, my interests.
1: Yeah, and 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 how did you uh come into the field of of uh Eastern Roman Empire and Byzantium? Was that something you were always passionate about or did you just come I don't know where?
0: Yeah, it's I think it's an interesting story. Um I did not have much exposure to the Byzantine Empire in high school and I think this remains sort of a a blank spot in many of our uh, high school and other secondary school curricula. Um, so I, I didn't know much about it, even from AP European history. Um, but uh, when I started attending university, I started originally as a computer science major, and I was going to learn to program and code. And then my father, uh, who knew I liked history, saw a historical novel in an airport bookshop and it was the novel Justinian by uh, Harry Turtletoe, and he picked it up for me and brought it home. He said, I know you like history. I don't know if you'd like this one, but I saw it, and I thought of you, and I read it, and I was blown away at this story. Uh, For your listeners, this is about the Emperor Justinian II, who ruled at the end of the 7th and the very beginning of the 8th century, and he lived this very, fascinating life full of intrigue and mutilation and murder. And I, I read this historical novel about the figure and I thought "This, there's no way this can be real. This, this has to be more of the fiction side than the historical side. And that inspired me to then look up uh, an actual historian's um, book on Justinian II. And I read Constance Head's Justinian of Byzantium. And that one confirmed that most of what I found interesting about this historical novel was real history. Uh, And so then I was hooked. So I started dropping computer classes and picking up history classes, picking up Greek language classes. um, And and that was it from there.
1: Wow, that's that's quite the journey to get to where you are. (laughs) Uh, And definitely the century you chose for your specialty, it's one of the most um, fascinating in in many aspects. Um, of of Byzantine and Roman hist- history as well, the sixth century. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the sixth century Byzantium to get us uh, established a, a little bit with our background before we dive into Belisarius and Antonina?
0: Yes, gladly. So we're looking at a Roman empire in the 6th century, which has contracted from its maximum extent in the earlier imperial Roman period, but is still very massive. So in the 6th century, uh, the emperors um, Anastasius and Justin and Justinian in the early portion of his reign uh, ruled over southeastern Europe, uh, Anatolia, what is today Turkey, uh, and then the Near East sort of bending from Syria down uh, into Egypt and and a little bit uh, west of Egypt. So they, they rule this fairly large empire in the eastern Mediterranean, larger than what we think of when we think of sort of the later medieval Byzantine period. So it's this large empire, um, but there is a sense uh In Justinian's reign especially, uh, that the empire used to be larger. Uh, So we have in Justinian a figure who is intensely aware of the Roman roots of his empire, the fact that it used to be more substantial and is eager to bring about a restoration uh, of the Roman world uh, through law, through um, building and eventually through war. So um, that's what makes the 6th century particularly compelling, I think, is that it's it's very literally a bridge between the later medieval Byzantine period and the earlier Roman period, in which you can see um, Justinian looking back, but also things that happened in his reign are looking forward to what is to come. So it's this very interesting pivot point in the long sweep, of Roman history. If you think of the the Roman state as starting uh, back with the city-state of Rome and stretching all the way into the 15th century AD. So uh, this is sort of the the pivot point for that whole period.
1: Mm -hmm. And Justinian, Emperor Justinian, of course, uh, and Empress Theodora are also huge figures, especially when it comes to a, a more generic knowledge of Byzantine history if I should say so if somebody doesn't know pretty much anything, they definitely have heard of Justinian and and Theodora because they they hold this um mythical stance in many ways um when it comes to their history and their story. Um, and what I liked about reading Billy Cyrus and Antonina was um I could see that duplicate in many ways uh you have two power couples for example at the same time uh and and their stories get intertwined and and um it was very fascinating to see um to explore uh the lives of Billy Cyrus and Antonina um in contrast but also together with that of Justinian and Theodora as well
0: yeah Justinian and Theodora happen to be two uh emperor and empress that if you know, the general public happens to know a, a Byzantine emperor. Empress, they probably know them. They're very famous from uh, their portraits in Ravenna. They're often sort of cover images for Byzantium in general. Uh, my brother-in-law just sent me the other day, uh, Justinian was a question on Jeopardy. So, you know, <laughs> um, not many Byzantine emperors probably make it into a, a Jeopardy category on a regular basis. Um, right. So, uh, So Justinian and Theodora were, are very important. They loom large today, but they were, of course, very important in the sixth century as well. They sort of overshadowed almost all of their contemporaries. So this is actually one of the challenges of the book to write about Belisarius and Antonina sort of in dialogue with Justinian and Theodora, but with also but also without them being completely overshadowed by the emperor and the empress, because they're such big, massive figures that they can easily sort of <laughs> crush everything that happened in the middle of the 6th century with their reputation and what we know about them. So trying to bring Belisarius and Antonina into their own while also keeping Justinian and Theodora in dialogue was was one of the challenges in writing this book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and I personally haven't really before this book um how much of exposure for these two figures Belisarius and, and and Antonina uh I I think because um the sixth century is not my, my area of, of, of uh research. Uh but again I was very interested in, in just how in, in this particular moment uh in the Byzantine um history, but also in their particular lives, uh and, and their and their whole um careers in, 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 in that particular moment. Um so let's dive right in. Um who is Belisarius and, and and who is Antonina?
0: Belisarius, uh, if if readers listeners are familiar with either of them, they're more likely to be familiar with Belisarius. He is the most famous general of the Emperor Justinian, uh, famous primarily for fighting wars in the West, although he was also a very important general in the East. And his title for most of his active service was General of the East. Uh, So he fought against the Persians on the Eastern Front and won a very important victory against them the Battle of Dara in 530. Um, But he's probably more famous for leading Justinian's wars in the West against the Vandals in North Africa and against the Ostrogoths in Italy. Uh, And Belisarius managed to take Both of those kings, the kings of the Vandals and the kings of the Ostrogoths, um, captive and bring them back to Constantinople in chains and present them to the Emperor Justinian. So Belisarius, very famous and very powerful. Uh, Antonina, his wife, I think, gets a little bit... uh, uh, less respect, uh, both in the ancient sources and and today when people talk about this period. But Antoninna was a very powerful woman in her own right. Uh, she was a political operative. She was an expert in supply chain management, as we might term it today. Uh, She traveled with Belisarius all around the world. She planned out things with him. She schemed to bring down the emperor and empress's enemies within the government and without the government. So um, Antonina, a a very powerful woman. And so together, Belisarius and Antonina, um, remarkable in that they traveled together and worked together. And this is as far as we can tell, not terribly common uh, for this period.
1: Yes, I think I see. Uh, I remember a passage in your book that, that that mentions that we know more about these two figures than pretty much, um, of course, except uh, the emperor and the empress uh, than anybody else in the Roman world at this point. Is that is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's that's the way I see it. We have. An extensive amount of information about belisarius and antonina which is another another reason to be excited about the sixth century for for his aspiring historians out there it's it's a well documented century at least as far as um the the period before say 1000 um so not nearly as well documented as the 14th century that you're interested in but but still a well-documented period for for the ancient and late antique world, so we know a lot about Belisarius and Antonina, which is unusual because most of the figures we know a lot about in this time period happen to be rulers. So we can fill out pretty accurate biographies for people like Justinian uh, and for uh, you know Western kings like Theodoric. Uh, but when we get outside of of kings, it gets a little bit more difficult, and and so we're very fortunate to have. A lot of detailed information about Belisarius and Antonina, not just from uh, Eastern or Byzantine sources, but also from Western sources that didn't have as much of a reason to to know them or to um, like them or dislike them one way or the other.
1: Yes, and and the when it comes to. When it comes to their stories, and, and and I guess that is a continuation now um, of knowing so much about them, I think you also are mentioning that, yes, we do know a, a, a lot about them, but at the same time, not so much in many ways. Um, and a, a name that, that pops up um, in this process is Procopius of Caesarea. Um, and his two works. And that's, in my opinion, the most interesting aspect about this. Um, so tell us a little bit about Procopius. Who is he? Um, how is he related to Belisarius to and-, and-, and Antonina? Um, and how do we see his two works um, uh, play out in our knowledge of them?
0: So Procopius uh, is probably one of the more brilliant minds of the 6th century. He is an intellectual. He is a historian. He was a lawyer. Um, He came to know Belisarius as a young man, probably just recently finished with his uh, education as a lawyer. He signed up as Belisarius's uh, assessor, uh, which is sort of a a legal advisor uh, and and personal secretary. Uh, So he attached himself to Belisarius early in the general's career, and then he proceeded to travel with Belisarius uh, for some length of time, at minimum 13 years, maybe one or two more. We're not sure exactly when he left Belisarius's service. So he's traveling around the Mediterranean with Belisarius. He watches Belisarius fight the Persians, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. So he's an eyewitness to many of the most important events of Belisarius's life. Um, and then uh, after he leaves Belisarius's service, he sits down to start writing. Uh, and his initial intent is to write a history of the wars waged by Justinian and his generals. And so we have this book called The History of the Wars which was uh, produced over the course of the 540s, um, probably came out uh, around 550, 551. uh, And this contains a history of these wars um, for public consumption. And it appears that Procopius was rewarded by the emperor for this. um, So everybody seems pretty pleased with this, this beautiful, massive history that he wrote. But um, around the same time as he was finishing up the wars, uh, Procopius, felt obliged to sit down and write a different work, uh, which has come down to us as the anecdota or the the secret things, the secret history. And uh, this document was clearly not meant for public consumption, at least at that moment, because it is a savage critique of Justinian and Theodora and Belisarius and Antonina. Uh, really destroys them and makes them look like awful, awful people, uh, villains, Um, not even people. In the case of Justinian and Theodora, they're presented as these demons who are out to destroy the world in any way they can. Uh, So this is invective of the highest order. um, And it has proven surprisingly effective over the long haul. At the time it was written, we're fairly certain that nobody read it. Procopius wrote it and stuffed it in a drawer, not sure what to do with it. He obviously couldn't uh, put it out publicly because he'd probably get in trouble. Um, so he probably stuffed it in a drawer and left it there for many years, but it has been discovered and you know, it's really shaped the way modern historians have looked at these four figures. Uh, and so a lot of trying to understand the sixth century in general and these four figures in particular comes down to how a historian weighs these two works of Procopius, and whether you believe more the publicly written history of the wars, or the privately written secret history. Uh, And so a lot of my own book was was trying to seek dialogue between those two sources, um, who are both Procopius, but Procopius and very different modes.
1: Yes. And and I think that that really helped, especially me as a reader. um, Because again, you have the same author, two very complete different works uh, that portray these figures in completely different lights. Um, And then what what I saw in in the book is exactly that. Let's try to see where we can find ourselves in the middle. Um, And... Has that has that been the case with previous scholarship or or how uh historians are viewing these figures um uh, right now or is that something that has been uh very uh new um in especially this particular um um historical interest
0: sure that's a great question we sort of have Two different trends within historiography over the past, say, hundred years um, of this period. Um, on the one hand, there has been a substantial body of modern historians, um, and there still are, who tend to take the secret history more or less at face value. Um, this is there's a degree of credulity involved here, in that well, it's it's written down. And Procopius knew these two personally, and therefore, this must be true. This must be his true feelings. And from a certain perspective, this, of course, makes a lot of sense. If he was willing to write one thing publicly for a very powerful emperor who was likely to praise him for writing something positive or punish him for writing something negative, he would presumably write something positive publicly. Um, And therefore, the secret history, this line of thought goes, must be Procopius's true feelings and the true events behind this history that he could not dare to record for the public. Um, So that's been a very common stream of interpretation for a long time now, and and still is to this day. And I track in my book, uh, many, many examples of modern historians who take, for example, the stories of Belisarius and Antonina in the secret history as sort of self-evident historical truth. This is what happened. Um, However, there is a second stream of research that has emerged more recently, I would say within the last 30 years. Uh, and this stream of research is uh, primarily in uh, gender-critical history, uh, and historians looking at the secret history through the lens of gender history uh, see within it um, what they see as obvious signs of Procopius's sort of uh, anti female attitude uh, in the way that he describes uh, these actions by Antonina and by the Empress Theodora. uh, And therefore, they see it as um, exaggerated uh, and unlikely to represent reality because these are gendered tropes or or common conceptions uh, from the sixth century. Uh, So then there's a question of uh, perhaps, you know, the secret history is is designed to make these figures look bad. And Procopius is exaggerating some things, perhaps making up other things in in order for that to happen. Um, So uh, both of these have their place within uh, modern historiography when looking at this. So I was sort of... um, weaving around as i as i looked at you know potential models and the way people have used the secret history
1: yes and and i assume that must have made your work a little more challenging because uh, i i think you mentioned in in a part where um you mentioned that his, writing the history of belisarius and antonina without the works of procopius will, will be virtually impossible um so that must have been challenging trying to try to, again, weed through these two uh, ways of thinking, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we, we do have information about Belisarius and Antonina outside of Procopius, but but to, to give up on Procopius would be so difficult because we get so much information from him. And, and there are so many things about them that we only know for sure, you know, from this problematic secret history. So uh, for me, the challenge was... Figuring out how to use Procopius in a way that was consistent so that I wasn't just cherry picking things that I thought I liked, um, but also that was also not uncritical, that I wasn't just accepting everything that was being offered um, through Procopius. So uh, he is absolutely essential to understanding this time period, but he, he does represent a challenge uh, for any historian writing about this
1: which makes it so much more interesting uh especially um after i read your work of course you you go through all the weeding out and i just get to enjoy reading it <laughs> it makes su- such an interesting story um it adds Thank another le- in in a- it adds another level of mystery uh um, yeah i mean i think
0: i think the book is really it's interesting because the book is, of course, me writing about Belisarius and Antonina. And, and as much as I could, that's what I wanted the focus to be me and these two historical figures. But as much as I might have wanted it, that's not possible. It's really like me and Procopius here next to me, and together we're like looking at Belisarius and Antonina. So, you know, even though his name's not in the title, he's like all over the book. You know, it's a dialogue between me and the ancient historian Procopius trying to look at these two historical figures
1: yes yes and uh, uh, yeah that's part of it i assume <laughs> um so yeah so what again um you just mentioned you know it, it, it was you trying to look at these two historical figures and make justice to their stories and both of them are such impressive uh in their own right um and since this book uh as you mentioned is is an exploration of the marriage and the partnership between the two um I think it will be more fitting if you if we can dive a little bit if we can dive a little bit into um how Billy Cyrus and how Anton- Antonina um came into the light how they got together uh and a little bit about that marriage and partnership because it seems really, really um interesting and in many ways, as as you mentioned, again, out of place for the time periods uh in in certain aspects.
0: Yes, this is a great question and and one that I wrestled with myself when writing the book. Uh, so the first evidence we have of Belisarius and Antonina acting in partnership is in june of 533 when belisarius sets sail at the head of a fleet of some 600 ships uh commanding uh, tens of thousands of soldiers and sailors on his way to attack the vandal kingdom in north africa and procopius includes in the history of the wars this one brief line and with him sailed his wife antonina and that that's really the start of their partnership uh presumably, I argue in the book, at least that they were married before then. So it's not like they got married and then hopped on this boat together. Uh, But this is the first time, as far as we can tell that she accompanied him on a military expedition, um, and a very dangerous military expedition at that this was not as simple as you know marching down the road to the frontier and fighting a battle at one of the empire's border forts this is getting on a boat sailing hundreds of miles to foreign held territory that the empire has lost fleets and armies at before and it's it's very dangerous and Antonina goes with him Uh, so she travels In the boat. Uh, She gets to North Africa and she marches around with Belisarius and the army. Uh, She helps Belisarius to uh, gain control of the city of Carthage in North Africa. We know that she is a part of. Capturing and sorting the loot in the Vandal Palace in Carthage. Um, and then uh, she returns with Belisarius to Constantinople and then proceeds to go out with him again uh, in 535. She sails to Italy uh, with Belisarius and a new army. Uh, and they begin this the war all over again in, in a different uh, kingdom, fighting the Ostrogoths in Sicily and then in Italy. Uh, and so we track Antonina with Belisarius uh, through Balisaris' time in Sicily up through the the uh, toe of Italy and all the way to the city of Rome. Uh, and there they have maybe their most impactful moment together when Balisaris and Antonina depose Pope Silvarius, uh, which I make a pretty substantial portion of, of my book because this is a remarkable moment. Not only is it unusual that Antonina is participating But the deposition of a pope is just unusual in general. Um, And I think, you know, from a distance, it may not seem that important to us. But when I looked at the time period, there just there weren't that many popes that were deposed. The last time this happened uh, was in the fourth century, and it wouldn't happen again until the seventh century. Uh, So this was an important moment, a once a century moment that a pope gets deposed forcibly. And here, Belisarius and Antonina do it together, acting in concert, uh, which is really interesting. And it's also interesting because it's confirmed by so many sources. This is one of those times where I get to step away from Procopius a little bit who does record this moment, uh, but we have plenty of Western sources that also mention it. So uh, I was able to track this, this deposition of Silerius through multiple Western sources, the book of the popes um, and some African bishops who wrote about it as well. So I, um, This was a very important moment in the book uh, and very interesting for me personally, but also uh, a key moment in illustrating how Belisarius and Antonina worked together uh, to get things done. Uh, Something that, as far as we can tell, very few couples were doing during this period.
1: And I I like that you stop here because in the moment, uh, in this particular aspect of the book, um... I was so interested in the fact that it looks like it was possibly uh, or probably that uh, and maybe Antonina uh, was the one that actually um, in, in some ways deposed the Pope or shared the news with him that he was being deposed. Um, to talk a little bit about that because that was so fascinating.
0: Yeah, so I... I... I spend some time in this in this chapter of the book trying to disentangle multiple sources who report it differently. So Procopius, in one of his books, says that Belisarius deposed Pope Silverius. In another of his books, Procopius says Antonina deposed Pope Silverius. And the Book of the Popes, the Liber Pontificalis, uh, presents uh, Antonina sitting Uh, or rather reclining on a couch in in ancient Roman fashion and Belisarius sitting at the ground at her feet (laughs) almost (laughs) as if he's sort of her assistant and she's the one who talks to Silvarius uh, and tells him that uh, you know he is being treasonous and that he is he's out of there he's being deposed Um, and so we have multiple pieces of evidence that suggest that Antonina did take the lead on this I'm not sure I buy that Belisarius was a passive bystander and completely uninvolved Um, but the evidence is clear enough to Antonina's involvement that we can at least imagine a situation where the two of them are you know working almost as equals uh, in this in this sort of political religious moment as they depose the pope so Antonina is by no means sort of a reserved stay in the background you know just traveling with her husband because she wants to like take care of his household kind of Woman, no, she is. She is there to be involved. She is there to wield power, uh, and she is there um, a, almost as a sort of a, a miniature version of Theodora. Just as Justinian and Theodora rule together, and Procopius complains about this in the Secret History. So it seems that Antonina was determined to participate in exercising power with Belisarius.
1: And that is an, and that is another fascinating aspect as well because. In many ways, again, the relationship of Billy Cyrus and 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 Antonina um, with the royal couple, the Emperor and the Empress, was so so weird. If it, in 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 my opinion, it was positive and negative and ups and downs, uh, which we can um, of course expand a little bit on. But the origins and the background of Antonina and and uh, Empress Theodora are also similar, which is very very interesting. Uh, they both probably come from a similar uh so- socio-economic background um which seeing these two female figures of course um um coming to prominence and of course surviving history because they're made so much um, they got so much attention from the historian, right, that he wrote them down and then we know about them. So um, I thought that was a very interesting part that uh, they both had similar. It seems that the two power couples that, that we're talking about right, right now had a lot of similarities.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think this is an interesting point uh, that, that they seem to mirror each other and that both Theodora and Antonina have family backgrounds within public entertainment in Constantinople. Um, And as, as some of your listeners may know, and others may not, um, this kind of entertainment was very popular, but the entertainers were not considered um, to be the cream of the crop or the social elite. So uh, it's rather the opposite of the world we live in today where famous, you know, movie actors uh, are are considered the elite of our society, make lots of money, are, are sought after to come to you know, public events. Uh, quite the opposite uh, in the sixth century. Entertainers were uh, enjoyed at entertainment venues. But other than that, the elites looked down on them as um, untouchable, as unworthy uh, people in society. So Theodora, we know from Procopius herself, served as an actress and an entertainer in her young life. Antonina, we're not as sure, but we know her mother was. So she she came from the same world, even if she didn't participate herself. And then Justinian and Belisarius, on the other hand, uh, were the farthest one can imagine from this. Uh, instead of growing up in a big city and working entertainment, uh, they came from small towns in the Balkans. And they came up through Roman society as, as soldiers. So they worked in the army. Uh, so we're imagining two sort of... Uh, rough spun men uh who have the hard life of serving in the army, um, and two very cosmopolitan, very urbane, uh, but at the same time sort of despised women. Uh so it's it's interesting that they have similar backgrounds. And then in each case, the 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 rough spun uh warrior from the Balkans marries the the uh despised actress from the city. Uh, so I think that there's something to that. Uh, we're not sure how close of friends these four people were, uh, but their backgrounds are so similar. Their marriages are so similar. They work together so well for so long uh, that I I think it's probably safe to assume that they did develop friendships along the way. Mm-hmm.
1: And following that, um, we see throughout your book Um, Belisarius having a very rocky uh, at times, a very unconventional uh, relationship with the Emperor. So he gets... He gets put into these big positions, big titles. Then because he does something, he gets uh, taken off these positions. Then he gets forgiven. He gets appointed to another, uh, like, like, like the expedition uh, in, in Africa. And then the big important role that he played while fighting the Ostrogoths in Rome. Um, so we see an up and down in the relationship. Um Can you expand on that a little bit? Because that was a very fascinating point. And maybe, again, we don't know why that was. uh, But it seems that he had a different stand, a different standing in the eyes of Justinian than others, or maybe other generals. Um, I don't know if I'm correct in that, uh, but that's kind of how I uh, interpreted it.
0: Sure, so we've got two things going on here. One, uh, there is a general tendency over the course of Justinian's reign for him to move around his generals like pieces on a chessboard. Uh, So it's not actually uncommon for generals to be moved from one theater to another, from one position to another. and it's not uncommon for Justinian to fire a general for what he sees as poor performance. And then upon reflection, upon a year or six months of thinking about it, he then decides, okay, well, that guy, he wasn't that bad. We'll give him a try over here and then and then appoint them somewhere else. So that's not super unusual in the reign of Justinian. But I do agree that there is something particular and special about the relationship that Justinian has with Belisarius. Uh, it's a relationship which is characterized by both trust and suspicion at the same time. Um, and this trust, which evidently comes perhaps from their shared background, perhaps from their early service together, Um, This trust is very real, and it leads Justinian to grant Belisarius um, increasingly large, important positions and and particular grants of authority. So uh, in particular for the wars in Africa and Italy, Belisarius is given, quote, the authority of an emperor um, in his actions. So he's clearly raised up to a very high level. Um, And so this this trust is an important feature of their relationship. But I think... um, Because he has so much trust in Belisarius and grants him so much authority, there's always sort of a niggling fear in the back of Justinian's mind. What if I've misjudged this man? What if he's not as loyal as I think he is? And it seems that that distrust can be fanned into an open flame at at some moments. So we do sort of see this interesting up and down relationship between Justinian and Belisarius. Um, I think that the down moments are less frequent um, than the up moments. I think over the long run, they had a very productive relationship and for the most part worked well together Um, but those lows do tend to be pretty low for belisarius simply because the stakes are so high for justinian if the emperor is wrong it means his throne and his life so i think that there are multiple times when the emperor just feels like he can't be wrong Uh, and so he errs on the side of not trusting rather than trusting um so I, we see that a couple of times with with belisarius losing the emperor's good graces
1: yes of course that that makes sense and there's always of course the fear of every emperor that uh a general might get too much popularity in many ways and and threaten their throne um and i think we see that once with belisarius um when the um um emperor uh was um Sick, I believe Uh, it it was, uh, I forget the particular time when I was, it might have been uh, by when the um, Justinianic plague was around or much later.
0: That's correct. Yeah. So uh, 542. Uh, So the Justinianic plague emerges in Egypt in 541. By 542, it's spread throughout most of the Eastern Mediterranean, including Constantinople and the Emperor Justinian falls ill uh, with the plague. And we get this interesting anecdote. Um, which is described as a rumor, so we can't be sure that this actually happened. Uh, but the, the rumor is that when word of the emperor's illness reached the military camp where Belisarius was located, he and some of the other senior officers got together to discuss what they should do if the emperor died of the illness. Uh, and the report was that somebody said uh, that there should not be another emperor chosen from Constantinople and that instead uh, a military man should take the throne uh, and and the circumstances that man would only be Belisarius he's the most senior general present at this alleged meeting so I think there's some question whether this meeting actually happened or whether Belisarius's enemies within the uh high ranks of the military simply made this up to sort of Put him on the outs with the emperor. I think that's an open question. But um, it is the case that Belisarius had apparently sworn an oath to Justinian never to plan a rebellion while the emperor still lived. And I think that qualification at the end, while the emperor still lived, is an important one, because it shows us that Belisarius, although he may be characterized by loyalty to Justinian, is not a man without ambition. He's not some spineless jellyfish. Uh, If the emperor were to suddenly die, Belisarius did see it as perhaps his his rightful time to become emperor. So this was a moment where that might have happened. And so it, as it turned out, it didn't happen. The emperor recovered from the plague. Uh, and then finding out that this discussion had taken place, uh, recalled Belisarius, interviewed him, and then uh, deposed him from his position. So this is the probably the lowest moment of Belisarius's career. It followed on several other particular nasty moments, um, including uh, an argument with his wife uh, and the death of his adopted son. So all, all of this bad stuff's happened to Belisarius at the same time. So uh, five forty two probably the, the low mark of Belisarius's career.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and again the other point that um, I, I like to. I loved reading about was that we have these big figures, they each have their own uh fascinating history, fascinating um journey. Uh, but when when it comes to um talking about them in a partnership, especially about Billy Cyrus and and, and Antonina, um, is just some so much more um unique uh to see, especially in a book like this, um, about a particular about this particular topic in the sixth century um and i think uh you you mentioned that uh this dual portrait uh in one book talking about both figures um has never been attempted before um and and that these two figures have been um talked separately uh or or that was the tendency um yeah and i i just found that very unique and and it really make more it, it made more sense in many ways to to see them as such um because in my opinion it kind of brings us closer to how might they have lived uh and what might have influenced their decisions their lives um Etc
0: yeah I think I think one of the problems uh with historians looking at these figures up to this point has been that by and large, the people primarily interested in writing about Belisarius have been uh, very traditional military historians who want to describe battles and campaigns. So we have no shortage of military-themed biographies of Belisarius. Um, so there's uh, a, a very famous one, Um and more recent ones and they're all about sort of belisarius this glorious military hero and belisarius this triumphant general um and antonina might make sort of side appearances here and there as necessary but but the focus is on uh belisarius and that can be for um reasons of sort of the the field, the genre. So you're focused only on the military, so you're going to focus on that stuff. But I think some of it's also been ideological, been a desire to present Belisarius as this sort of glorious figure in sixth century history, the last of the Romans he sometimes described. And it doesn't fit so well to have the secret history version of Belisarius who's being bossed around by his wife uh, in that kind of story. So she just gets largely left out. Uh, And then Antonina, to the extent that she's been examined, has primarily been examined by uh, gender historians who are looking into how Procopius describes women. So she sort of gets tacked on to a study about Procopius' attacks on Theodora, for example. Um, So there hasn't been very many figures at all who've been interested in the two of them together. Uh, but mm-hmm. as you pointed out, like this is this is how they experienced their lives. They didn't have a, a separation. In fact, probably more than any couple in the sixth century that we know about, they didn't have a separation between public life and personal life. Their their personal life together was their public service. Um, and that's I think what makes them very interesting. And, and why I felt that I had to write a book about both of them instead of just another biography of belisarius or or even a biography of antonina neither one of them can be understood without the other
1: yes and and i love that I, i think it's the talking about marriage and partnership with these two great figures um in in this context was just so refreshing um to read about in 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 this manner um my question is so on your cover page you have um both of them together uh what's what is is we think it is Billy Cyrus and what we think is uh and and Antonina from the mosaic uh from the mosaics uh in Ravenna um what are the chances these figures represent Billy Cyrus and Antonina
0: this is a great question
1: (laughs) because they are right next to the emperor and the empress in in the mosaics um yeah
0: right so um As you pointed out, I think, and many people think, it's not like I'm the only one, think that these figures represent Belisarius and Antonina, but they are not labeled. um, So we can never be 100% sure. So I'll just sort of lay out the case uh, for why uh, me and other historians do this identification this way. So these mosaics in the Church of San Vital in Ravenna, uh, were laid down according to arguments made by art historians um sometime between 540 and 544 uh 545 somewhere in that region um and we know that um the emperor and empress are represented hard to miss them they have the crowns on um so we know that's Justinian and Theodora uh, we know that the bishop uh present uh is the bishop of ravenna uh he was originally uh victor uh, but victor died uh, before the mosaics were complete and it seems the new bishop maximian had his name written above the head of the bishop's place to emphasize it was him so we know who the bishop is so that's you know the crowned people and the most important ecclesiastical figure are, are all identified so then who are these people that are to the immediate right and left respectively of uh Justinian and Theodora? Uh, well, they must be pretty important because they are right next to the emperor and empress. So there's they're somebody that is important, that has a connection to the emperor and empress, and also has an important connection to the city of Ravenna in that time period between 540 and 545. Well, Belisarius and Antonina uh, marched into Ravenna in spring 540 and officially liberated or took over, if you prefer, that city from the Ostrogoths. So they're right there at the beginning of this period when potentially these mosaics were being planned. Belisarius and Antonina returned to Ravenna in 545 uh, to begin their second campaign in Italy. And so they were right there at the time these mosaics were potentially completed. Uh, so... uh. The two figures that most connected Justinian and Theodora in Constantinople and the city of Ravenna uh, happen to be Belisarius and Antonina, uh, if you take away the bishop, which we've already done. Uh, so why shouldn't it be them? Uh, who else would have the ability to claim to be The emperor's right hand man, or the empress's right hand lady, um, Mm -hmm. but Belisarius and Antonina. So you know, it's just possible that they represent some other, you know, local bigwigs in Ravenna rather than Belisarius and Antonina. But I, I have to imagine that the general and his wife had a vested interest in making known to the local people there their importance and advertising their connection to the imperial couple. Uh, and so that's that's the reason for identifying them as Belisarius and Antonina. Is it enough to say for certain? Like I said, can never be a hundred percent sure without name tags up there. But it's it's a good right. enough argument for me.
1: Yes, yes, and me as well. Uh, I believe that it's probably them. Uh, and I'm not gonna lie; I was very uh, I was uh, tricked in many ways by the cover because uh, I see them together. Um, And I actually uh, doubted myself and and I went to check the actual mosaic. And uh, for those that don't know, there are actually two different mosaics. Uh, And uh, what uh, happened here in the cover of the book is you put them together very fittingly. Uh, But that was just a fun thing that I'm like, oh, they're not together in in the actual mosaics. But uh, in in the cover, I think it really works well.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, it's it's a beautiful cover and I, I can't take full credit for it because I did not do the actual work myself. Uh, a very good graphic designer at Oxford University Press did this. Um, but I think it's a beautiful metaphor for the book itself because as you said, these are two separate mosaics, sort of the, the men's mosaic and the ladies' mosaic. Uh, and Belisarius is on the Justinian mosaic and Antonina is on the Theodora mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as I know, the images you see on the cover have never been combined together before like this. Um, there's been various hand drawings, most famously on the cover of Robert Graves' Count Belisarius book over a century ago. Uh, but there's never been an attempt to put together photographs of these two mosaics in this way. Um, so they're brought together very poetically, as they should be, uh, and also... In my book, I'm bringing together these two figures and looking at their lives together as I think they should be. So uh, that's how the cover sort of like a, um, a metaphor, a microcosm of the book itself.
1: Yes. And that was and that was a nice uh, Easter egg <laughs> that uh, if uh, if one of our audience uh, purchases your book, that's something to look forward to. Um I think I've taken a lot of your time. So I wanna um close us up with a few more questions. So lastly, when we when it comes to this story, um where do you see the story of Billy Cyrus and and Antonina passing on to legend and in today's popular culture? I know you have a few uh passages uh in the conclusion of the book about um th- their story actually being well and alive and sometimes even um more more um implicated in in the last few years and as example you have um the cover page of uh judicator uh which is a i, I believe a metal band here in the united states and it has billy saris and and a- antonina uh the album is called let there be nothing um and then you're also working uh on um a video series, a documentary uh, see, series uh, on them with Epic Epic History TV. So, um, talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so I, I think in the introduction to the book, I make the point that Belisarius and Antonina are not household names exactly. So we don't, everybody doesn't know them. The name doesn't roll off the tongue. Uh, but within certain segments of media, they still are alive and well. Uh, So they've they've cropped up in numerous places just in the last uh, seven to eight years. Uh, They've appeared in um, a heavy metal album. As you say, it's a concept album by the band Judicator. It's all about their their life together um, and the song sort of track them throughout their their career uh, in a very evocative and interesting way. Um, And they also uh, appear in video games. So we have um, an episode of the. Total War series, uh, which is devoted to the campaigns of Belisarius and Antonina makes appearance in them. Uh, They've appeared within literature. So there have been multiple sort of historical fantasy historical yeah more fantasy than fiction but but that involved belisarius and antonina in in various ways um and uh yeah so also a documentary i helped participate in producing a documentary for epic history tv it's on youtube uh this is about a year ago it's all complete now so viewers can go and and watch the history of belisarius there if if that's more their speed than than reading books um so i I think that Belisarius and Antonina continue to exercise a fascination among a subset of the population. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with where we started this episode, the general popularity of the sixth century, the Justinian, Justinianic era in general. If, if people know of a period of Byzantine history, they're probably most likely to know of this sort of early period in the sixth century. And so, um, Belisarius and Antonina kind of can ride, uh, once again the, the successful coattails of their sovereigns and their reputations into into popular consciousness
1: yes and and I had to check the Judicator album last night uh, out of curiosity and that was very I- interesting indeed so um, I'll have to follow up with uh, the YouTube uh documentary uh soon as well
0: absolutely uh would would love you to do so would love your would love your listeners to do so um i think it's it's an important part of the work that i do we started this by talking about what do i do as a historian and this has been something new for me in my last few years of my career I've begun to to think about how to get out of the box of the academy um, and and writing books and writing articles is important work that we do as historians, but we also should be thinking about how we can reach the broader public that doesn't read academic books that doesn't read academic journals, how can we tell them about what interests us, what research we're doing, um, what's important to us, and why what we do matters. And this is a case that all of us historians need to be making to the general public, especially in an age in which the humanities in general and history in particular as a discipline is often under attack, at least in this country uh, and probably other countries. Um, so we need to make the case that history matters. And that means occasionally getting out of our comfort zone, looking at things like music and YouTube and um podcasts like this one right so we we need to we need to make the case for history and for what we're doing and why it matters
1: i agree there's been many surveys out there and they point out to this exactly um this exact topic of how does the general public learn about history and um again we have to be as approachable as 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 we can right
0: yeah, absolutely. We have to we have to meet people where they are. And if where they are is is not reading books, it's watching videos on YouTube, then then we've got to either make videos on YouTube or help the people that are making videos on YouTube to incorporate the most up-to-date research and advice from historians like us in, in those videos.
1: Mm-hmm. And have you been able to use uh this in any of your courses uh as you teach uh and if if you have what has been their perception of students uh, on this, I, I will be very interested to know.
0: Yes, uh, I use uh, I use this. I have not used my book specifically. Uh, maybe I'm too modest to want to assign my book directly to my students, but um, it's proven a very useful sort of case study, um, having students examine. Procopius in the history of the wars and Procopius in the secret history and then try to make sense of it. Um, it's it's a great exercise for students to give them, if not the whole of each text, which is a lot, to, to at least give them excerpts. So depending on the level of the course, 100 level, 300 level, whatever, I'll give them a little more, a little less, and I'll have them do comparisons and, and analyses. And uh, I think the hardest part for me is is uh, holding back when I'm grading and remembering that these are my students and that you know it's okay if they have different interpretations than I do. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it it works really well for that.
1: Great. That's awesome. Um, So yeah, so I want to thank you very much for your time, David. Um, And I would like to ask you a final question before you go. Um, What are you up to nowadays? And do you have any interesting projects that you're currently working on?
0: Yes. So um, before I get into another book project, which will hopefully come down the road, I have sort of one lingering thing left that I'm working on from this project on Belisarius and Antonina, Uh, while I was writing about Belisarius in the West, I became very interested in how the peoples in the West, in particular in North Africa, the Vandal Kingdom, and in Italy, the Ostrogothic Kingdom, um, experienced the Roman restoration that accompanied the wars of Belisarius. Uh, And I think a, a lot of current scholarship argues that that these wars were very damaging and that it didn't go very well and that the peoples of the West were mostly fine as they were. And, you know, Belisarius brought the army and Justinian brought the administration that kind of slowed things down or made things worse. Um, and I'm interested in the very early years. So how did people respond in to Belisarius' initial arrival? What did they think about the return of Roman administration to North Africa and Italy. So my next project is is an article examining um, this kind of reception. Um, not later, as we know, later things got messy. There was the plague. Things got sort of dark and depressing. But in the initial years, were people excited to see the Roman Empire back? Were they excited for this Roman restoration of Justinian? That's what I'm interested in trying to uncover a little of that.
1: Yes. Well, best of luck with that uh, and coming it and bringing it into fruition. Uh, and all the best with all of your future projects.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Evan.